What can be learned from a story woven out of fragmented moments of joy, pain, and blissful awareness? I wrote my first book, Flesh Mapping, in 2013. It was an invitation into co-creating a pedagogy, a way of learning through our shared narratives of plays and politics, a way of mapping the injuries of the material, emotional, spiritual impact of all our many journeys of growth. Some may call it struggle, forced poverty, displacement, hunger, and war. As a child raised in war, I've learned many lessons. And in the art of living, I'm inviting some of my heroes some of the people who walk with me, who have taught me to walk in beautiful ways, to see co-creation, to see community as our immunity to pain, to suffering, to wanting. Welcome. I'm your host, Sylvia Richardson, and this is The Art of Living. We're very privileged to have as our guest, Dr. Sunera Tabani. She is the author of Exalted Subjects. Sunera Tabani is an assistant professor at the Center for Women's and Gender Studies at the University of British Columbia. Her research focuses on race and gender relations and migration, citizens, and nation building. Uh, She was the first woman of color to serve as president of the National Action Committee of the Status of Women, the NAC, between 1993 and 1996. During that time, along with Canadian Labor Congress, she organized the National Women's March Against Poverty. She made national news in October of 2001 as one of the first critics of the U.S. foreign policy on the war on terror when she stated, from Chile to El Salvador to Nicaragua to Iraq, the path of U.S. foreign policy is soaked in blood. Very happy to have you on our show. Welcome to our show, Dr. Tuani. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. Now, your words sparked a great deal of lashback against you. And uh, I want to begin talking about how does this war on terrorism exacerbated the, the racism that seems to fuel a system of capitalism? Well, the war on terror is actually uh, ideologically framed around a supposed defense of Western civilization and Western culture. And the West, of course, is a deeply racialized entity. Historically, it was in Europe's relations with its others, the world that it subsequently colonized, that the idea and the identity of the West came into being. So the war on terror is deeply racialized through this discourse of kind of reconstituting, uh, re-energizing a Western civilization. So that's one way in which it has kind of drawn upon historical forms of racism and is re-articulating them for the 21st century. Uh, The other part of the racism around the war on terror is, of course, the uh, intense Islamophobia that it has unleashed around the world. And so this fear and hatred of Muslims around which nations are developing their their kind of conceptions of national identity, national security, who it is that is the enemy of this. And so the figure of the Muslim has, again, you know, uh, emerged as this deeply racial figure. In your book, Exalted Subjects, you spelled out how this exalted subject is constructed in contrast to the other. Explain what you mean by that. 
Well, in exalted subjects, I really wanted to see how a settler society like Canada, like the U.S., and, you know, other countries uh, uh, like New Zealand, Australia, how is it that a settler society transforms itself into a nation? How does it organize access to this nation? What are the kinds of exclusions and inclusions that allow this society to function and to remake itself? And so it was in asking questions like that that I began to see that part of the process through which a nation is constituted is by defining its nationals, defining what their identity is. And in Canada, of course, Canadians like to think of themselves as compassionate, humanitarian, law-abiding, unlike others, unlike immigrants who are seen as, you know, bending immigration uh, laws and regulations, who attempt to enter the country um, legally or otherwise to take benefit of its generous social programs. And so whereas Canadians are constituted as compassionate caring, sharing, immigrants are seen as somehow lacking that very human capacity. Aboriginal people, on the other hand, are also not seen as compassionate, humanitarian. Instead, they are constituted as always wanting more and more from Canadians. So I began to look at how this identity is constructed, which, you know, gives a kind of human dimension to, to who the Canadian is. And it was in identifying those qualities that I, you know, came up with the idea of exaltation as a process through which the state binds its nationals to itself by defining their humanity in particularly, you know, positive and exalted terms, to be compassionate, to be humanitarian is something that is a very kind of exalted aspect of being a human being. But it's through nationalizing these human capacities and qualities and enshrining them in state policy that the state actually binds its nationals to itself. And so I you know, came to identify this as a process of exaltation and the subjects who are included in this process is exalted themselves. And that's an important connection to make because when we see ourselves as different from others and somehow superior by our moral qualities or whatever identity characteristics that we want to exalt, it leads a a way for a lot of um, room (laughs) for subjective observations. And in the case of the war, particularly the war in Afghanistan, uh, many people did not oppose the war. And as this exaltation of how some wars are just and some are justifiable, talk a little bit about how do we negotiate then those contrasting views that seem to be, we're allowing decisions to be made that are against our very own interests. The multiculturalism discourse almost paralyzes the movement of social justice, a movement against otherness that allows this kind of disparity. First of all, we can see ourselves in whatever we want to. Hmm? But how you see yourself has to be recognized and reflected back to you by the society in which you live. So, for example, as Canadians can call themselves compassionate, they can see themselves as compassionate and caring, and the state responds by developing social policies that are kind of, you know, uh, are based around this idea of compassion sharing. So the first thing is to see how deeply the state is implicated in how we see ourselves. It's not 
just individual choices, individual preferences, but the state and state policy play a key role in how we see ourselves is reflected back to us at the level of social life. In terms of the Afghan war, I think the quality which best uh, exemplifies how Canadians have been recruited into supporting these wars or nationalized into supporting this war is by defining it as a benevolent project. You know, Canadians tell themselves that they have gone to Afghanistan to save little Afghan girls, to allow Afghan girls to go to school, to save Afghan women. And so the quality, the very human quality of benevolence is here being nationalized by the state. Canadians are benevolent. They want to help. And so it's It's a a state policy that fixes itself in a notion of Canadian goodness, of helping, rather than Canadians seeing themselves as, you know, engaged in a war, which has resulted in the deaths of, uh, you know, tens of thousands of Afghan women, children. Uh, so, So the quality of benevolence, we see it working very clearly in how the Afghan war is being fought, and we also see how ideologically it is so important because Canadian support for the war is a popular public support for the war was actually rooted in this idea of benevolence and Canadians wanting to help and save and do good. So the state is deeply implicated in how we, quote-unquote, come to see ourselves. So the one thing is to never lose sight of, of the role of state policy and state practices. In terms of the question around multiculturalism and the impact it has had of paralyzing social movements, again, I look at uh, multiculturalism as official state policy in my book. I look at how multiculturalism uh, has at one level really stabilized uh, the national subject, the Canadian national subject as essentially white, because it's in relation to the nation, which is Uh, defined as bicultural, bilingual, English and French, that other cultures are to be respected, tolerated, uh, even liked sometimes. And so multiculturalism preserves the core of the nation as essentially white, as English and French. And it's in relation to this true national subject that others are to be tolerated, respected. Um, And so multiculturalism in a way furthers a racial politics, only it does it in the discourse of cultural difference. And multiculturalism has had a very, uh, you know, I I would uh, agree with you, a very negative impact on social movements because it has allowed people of color to be constituted as other, as culturally different. And so the struggles that people of color face in Canada are issues around uh, political power, around economic participation, around access to resources, and these all get reframed by the language of multiculturalism into issues of cultural difference. And, you know, many on the left, many uh, social movements themselves adopt these kinds of definitions of people of color, and they do uh, see issues through the lens of cultural difference, which really works against a solidarity that's based on a similarity of human experience. And so cultural difference has become the lens through which 
social movements, including the women's movements, continues to see people of color. In many ways, even as, as the social movements contest the state, contest the powers uh, that, that organize Canadian society, when it comes to people of color, it actually accepts and reproduces the same definitions of these people and what their issues are, as the state does. And so multiculturalism has really, you know, driven uh, divisions uh, amongst groups who I would argue have a solidarity based on their experience if it wasn't viewed through the lens of cultural difference. Could you talk a little bit about how has this benevolent notion of Canada as a notion that's not founded on genocide or colonization allowed not only the uh, invisibility of Indigenous people as, as a people, but has also exacerbated the abuses and erosion of their human rights? Well, I think it's very important, you know, the point you, you, you raise is very important. I think that, you know, the starting point for my work, my analysis, is that Canadian nationhood remains uh, dependent upon the suppression of Aboriginal peoples. And so the colonization of Aboriginal peoples is actually ongoing. It happens every day at the sites of our daily life. And so I think an important thing is to realize that this colonization and genocide of Aboriginal people is not actually something that happened in the past. It continues at an everyday level. Aboriginal people are struggling for sovereignty even today. You know, how is it that Canadian subjects, national subjects, have come to understand their relationship to Aboriginal people? With the founding of the nation, Aboriginal people were constituted as lawless, as quote-unquote savages, that they did not have civilized systems of governance. This, of course, was a complete lie. But the idea that Canadians are law-abiding is really based on their distinction from Aboriginal people who were defined as living in lawless societies. You know, one of the ways in which these kind of colonial identities and colonial relations get reproduced today are by Canadians being proud of themselves to, you know, stand by the law. And the law says that Aboriginal people are only entitled to this much. Well, the law was central in the colonization of Aboriginal people. Europeans brought over to the Americas their own systems of law. They suppressed and destroyed Aboriginal forms of legality, structures of governance, and imposed their own. And so law has been complicit. So I think that when Canadians think of themselves as living in a society that respects law and order, this is a deeply colonial construct that is implicated in the dispossession of Aboriginal people. Uh, today, of course, Canadians prefer not to remember this history, and uh, you know they, they kind of choose to look at their relationships with Aboriginal people as they exist today. And often I hear arguments, many times from students as well, that Aboriginal people get too much federal funding, they get too much money, they are not uh, self-reliant, they are not uh, sharing the same values as of a work ethic, entre entrepreneurial, enterprising as Canadians do. And they also tend to formulate the status of Aboriginal people within a culturalist lens. Oh, their cultures are more spiritual will be the positive argument, their cultures are more deviant will be the negative argument. But the frame of cultural difference, again, helps Canadians to not face the role of law, the role of economic policy, the role of property rights in terms of the dispossession of Aboriginal people, which remains ongoing even today.
could you talk a little bit about the institutions that have enabled the erosion of indigenous rights? And in your book, you talk specifically about the role of genocide and the residential schools. For many people, they're, they're now closed. But what has replaced the system of residential schools and what is the compounded impact on these communities and on Canadians as a whole? Whether the issue is one of race or more is, is kind of the big question, yes? I think it's really important to be clear about what we mean by race. Do we mean just physical, biological kind of differences in the way that race was uh, defined by scientific theories of racism in the 19th century? Do we mean race as cultural difference as race gets to be constituted today in the 21st century? You know, when I think about race, for me, race is, I cannot think about the economy without thinking about race. Because, you know, when we talk about institutions, the residential school system, it was Indian children, Indian children, quote-unquote, defined as Indian, who were put into residential school systems. Well, that was a racial project. Hmm? If we look at uh, law, for example, in the way that I talked about it, uh, the imposition of European forms of law and legal institutions, parliamentary model, onto uh, Aboriginal peoples who lived in Canada. Now, that becomes race as well. So the legal system can't be understood fully in its, all of its colonial dimensions without seeing how race was central to it. Property rights. Who could buy property where? Who could own land and who could not? Was defined by race. Aboriginal people could not. They were dispossessed of their territories. They were seen as not uh, being involved in the institution of private property rights. And so when I, you know, who could, who had mobility? Who could move to any part of the country, live where they wanted to, where they could find work? Aboriginal people were uh, restricted from doing that on the basis of their race. So I think if we have an expanded definition of race, where we begin to understand not just its physical and biological uh, definitions and effects, but also its kind of legal, uh, economic, social institutions and effects as well. When we're talking about race, we're talking of something really quite fundamental to how the global economy is organized, to how the current social order is organized. So I think we have to be careful about how we're defining these terms. I think that we can talk about race or more, but we have to be clear in, in understanding what we actually mean by race. Uh, for me, <laughs> race is pretty central in terms of how the whole capitalist order is organized, how the global economy is organized, the division between the north and the south that we see today, which earlier was the division between the colonized world and the colonizing world. Um, all of these, for me, are part of race and part of how race is organized. They're all racial projects, if you will. Uh, when we talk about human equality, now this also, you know, we can't take the, the, the term human uh, for, for granted because when we say human, what does the human mean? For the last 500 years, Europeans and Euro-Americans and Canadians have defined themselves as the real measure of the human. They have defined their particular experience as the human experience. In my book, I look at how the very human qualities of Canadians, how they define their own humanity, is so deeply shaped 
by economic processes, by the development of capitalism, by the development of the welfare state. So what do we mean when we say human? And one of the ways in which colonial relations have been reproduced is by white people defining themselves as the universal human being. So when we say we all just want to be human, what is it that we're talking about? Because being human has been a way in which these systems and processes of oppression and exploitation have been organized. So we need to unpack also the category human. What, what do we actually mean by that? And it has to be a kind of self-conscious, self-reflexive definition of the human, which takes into account the way in which this category of the human legitimizes certain forms of oppression. It works today in the war on terror, where Muslim Islamists, for example, are seen as hateful, violent people who hate human civilization, which is equated with Western civilization. They're defined as barbaric, as less than human. They can be killed today anywhere in the world without any kind of legal system coming into play. We see targeted assassinations take place in Palestine, um, in Afghanistan, in Iraq. And so Muslims today are defined as less than human. So when we say we want to be human, we surely don't mean the American imperial subject today in whose name this war for Western civilization is being fought. So these are deeply loaded terms. They're deeply racialized terms. For a long time, the human meant the white uh, European. Uh, people of color were not even defined as human. So we have to, you know, think about human and, and define in a very different way than, uh, than this term has historically been defined and the way that this term has also been colonized by, uh, by uh, whites through racial politics. In terms of your question around the residential school system, what has replaced it? Um, you know, I look at residential school system in my book, and I argue, as many other people have argued, indigenous people, aboriginal people, aboriginal scholars argue, that the residential school system ended, but what replaced it was the child welfare system of the welfare state. And what we see is... a a uh, disproportionate level of apprehension of Aboriginal children who, instead of being put into the residential school system, were uh, apprehended by the state, taken into the, into the child welfare system of the welfare state, and then put into foster homes, often with white families, given up for adoption, some of them even given up for adoption outside the country. And so very clearly the child welfare system is what replaced the residential school system in terms of how Aboriginal children and families get to be treated and uh, defined within Canadian state policy and within the society at large. I wonder if you could talk about the way in which it has been essential to create this other in society, how it has served as the scapegoat, as you call it in your book, the scapegoat and immigrant. And if you could talk about what this tells us about our current policies in terms of immigration. Okay, so um, immigration has been central to the founding of the Canadian uh, nation 
and state and continues to remain so. Immigrant, of course, is a deeply racialized term. As I, as I discuss in my book, uh, you know, immigrants were defined as non-preferred races before uh, the 1950s, and the non-preferred races were black people, Asians, South Asians, and, and non-white people basically were defined as non-preferred races. So immigrant is a deeply racialized term because, of course, white immigrants came from the U.K., from France, from Eastern Europe, and all of them defined as preferred races in Canadian state policies were integrated into what then became the Canadian nation. So immigration has been central not only to the presence of immigrant communities in Canadian society, but to the very uh, construction of Canadian society itself. White immigrants became integrated, as they do even today. We have, you know, whites who come from America, from Australia. Many came from South Africa. They are not treated or talked about as immigrants. They get, you know, incorporated into the, the whiteness of, of, of the nation. Uh, people of color, on the other hand, you know, continue to be reproduced as immigrants through this racialization of, of this category. Now, immigration continues to remain vital to the Canadian nation and state because immigrants provide labor that is very, very um, uh, important to the development of the national economy. And immigrants, of course, also provide the population base. Uh, they provide... Um, taxes from the welfare state, um, the birth rate in Canada has actually been declining, and so it is below replacement level. So for the foreseeable future, immigration continues to remain absolutely vital to Canadian national interest. Now, uh, I think that, uh, you know, in my book I argue that the Canadian state is actually faced with uh, uh, two issues around immigration. One is how to ensure that uh, the labor is for economic growth, economic development, which means increased immigration from the third world. But on the other hand, how to continue to reproduce the whiteness of the nation, because Canada still continues to define itself as essentially bilingual and bicultural. So how then to continue defining it and reproducing it as a Western nation, which means essentially a white nation committed to, to European systems, uh, social systems, and values. So, so this is a big challenge. And one way in which this challenge gets uh, dealt with is to reproduce immigrants as outsiders to the nation. They may be here, they live here, they work here, we contribute everything that we can to this society, but we continue to remain outsiders to this nation, which, you know, preserves the core of the nation as white. In terms of the question that you're asking, in times of economic difficulties, it becomes very easy then to blame the immigrant, to scapegoat the immigrant. They become the cause of the problem, not the state, not its policies, not the economic system, but it's the immigrant who gets blamed. I mean, the common stereotypes, the common complaints, oh, immigrants come here and they take our jobs away. This is why... Some Canadians remain unemployed, they're poor. And so immigrants function as this kind of scapegoat and directing attention away from the policies of the state, from the inequalities that are deeply embedded in our economic and social and political institutions. Immigrants then become a handy kind of, you know, a tool. We also see immigrants now being used to justify um, the new uh, anti-terrorism measures, the new surveillance policies that have come into play. Uh, you know, immigrants, uh, Muslims, uh, come into the country. Uh, many of them might be potential terrorists. And so immigrants get scapegoated in that kind of way today 
to help justify the kind of transformation of the welfare state into a national security state with immensely enhanced powers of repression, which then we see being used against other populations as well. We see what happens at demonstrations, the, you know, the G20 uh, was was a very good example of that. These powers, uh, uh, enhanced repressive powers of the state, get used against Aboriginal people, but they get legitimized through scapegoating immigrants today as potential threats to national security. So we see immigrants being used and scapegoated and integrated into Canadian society in particular kinds of ways, but in ways that have historically maintained our status as outsiders to the nation, as less than real Canadians who are English and French and, 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 you know, since then white Canadians, and therefore entitled to greater surveillance, greater security measures, and, and lesser entitlements. How do we create a system that's not racist, that's not exploitive? Well, I think the first thing we have to do is to refuse to adopt a definition of racism that focuses only at the individual level and only at the level of interpersonal interactions. We have to insist that its systemic, structural, and historical nature is also taken into consideration. And when I say historical, again, I mean historical in the sense that this history continues to be present in the contemporary. So we have to, you know, for example, instead of treating the genocide of Aboriginal people as something in the past, to continue to understand that history, but to see how it gets reproduced in the present. The first step would be to kind of reject this individualized uh, definition of racism, which is promoted in the media, promoted by the state, promoted by, you know, many uh, status quo intellectuals. And instead, we have to really look at its systemic, structural nature, and, and also understand that it continues to change, that processes of racialization do not remain the same. Today we live in a society where the discourse of cultural difference is what reproduces racialized divisions and racialized uh, processes of racialization. So in a way, cultural difference stands in for the idea of racial difference. So when we use this culturalist language, we have to be continuously interrogating it, thinking about what it is accomplishing. So, so that becomes a very important point today, especially when we live in a society that is quote-unquote multiculturalist, that organizes communities in this society on the basis of culture, where previously it used to organize communities on the basis of race and racial difference. So, you know, continue to look at the social processes that un- underpin the constitution of particular kinds of communities. And for me, the question that is absolutely central is that of power relations. How does power function in how these communities are defined and they define themselves? Where is the power located? How does it function? So, you know, always the question of power. How does it operate? How, it is, how is it organized? And how is it concealed? And the language of cultural difference actually conceals how state power works in Canadian society. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, my guest is Sunera Tobani. Dr. Tobani is the author of Exalted Subject Studies in the Making of Race and Nation in Canada. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Art of Living. I'm an educational consultant and artist authored 
For more information about upcoming events, workshops, retreats, please reach out to sylvierichardson.com. Until next time, remember to be playful, to celebrate joy, and to allow love in all your co-creations. You'll never have to wonder where the groove went. The groove is you.